Yeah, so I really challenge people, what do you mean by qualified? And if you say that a candidate is qualified or not qualified, as scientists, we back up our data. So back that statement up with data. And really by asking faculty to do that, they have to pause and really be able to articulate that this isn't a gut feeling, that this, you know, whatever the, the red flag was or whatever the skill set was that the student ha didn't have, yeah, put that down. And you should be able to communicate that to other people so that we can make sure that we're really meeting what our definition of qualified is and not relying on biases of individuals. And, mm -hmm. you know, just to keep it 100% real, there can be very well-intentioned people that believe deeply in social justice that default to biases that they're not even aware of. Hello, everyone. I'm Angela Rosa Donato, And I'm Marian Leary. And you're listening to Amplify Nursing, a Penn Nursing podcast supported by the Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Amplify Nursing features nurses who are leading the way in science, policy, and innovation. Our guests defy stereotypes, define practice, and disrupt convention. We highlight the breadth and depth of nursing influence on society by amplifying nurses who are pushing boundaries and breaking down barriers to build a new paradigm. Today on the Amplify Nursing podcast, we talk with Dr. Piri Ackerman Barger, Associate Dean of Health Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion, and Associate Clinical Professor at the University of California, Davis, at the Betty Irene Moore School of Nursing. With strong backgrounds in both nursing and education, Dr. Ackerman Barger has worked extensively on the advancement of workforce diversity, education equity, and institutional sustainability throughout her career, and is one of four national diversity consultants for the Campaign for Action. Dr. Ackerman Barger talks with us about her pathway into nursing, the challenges of addressing diversity in healthcare, the impact of stereotype threats and microaggressions on learning outcomes, and the importance of promoting not only diversity, but inclusion as well. Hi, Piri. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. I really appreciate your time. It's great to, to see you again. Thank you, Angela. I, I appreciate you inviting me to be on your podcast. So why don't we start with what brought you into nursing? Let's see. It was definitely a, a combination of things. You know, in that, that difficult time when you're a young person trying to decide what you do, nursing presented two things that were really important to me. One was an emphasis on the sociological aspect of science. And then also the, the human, the physical human body was really interesting to me. And nursing really was a way to combine those two passions of mine. So, you know, I loved the courses around life development and taking psychology and sociology courses. And then of course, I love taking physiology and microbiology. So it just seemed like it was the marriage of the two kinds of sciences that I really appreciated. And then if we're gonna keep it 100% real, I grew up pretty darn poor, like probably meeting the poverty line. And it was important to me to find a job that would pay a decent salary. And nursing fit all of those buckets. And, you know, honestly, I have never regretted joining nursing. I'm proud to be a nurse. And there are so many different things that you can do within nursing that it was a really good decision that I made as a young person. 
What did your practice look like early on? Well, there's some funny stories around that. I really thought that I was going to be a labor and delivery nurse. I had had um, some experiences with one of our local midwives and you know that whole process is, is just fascinating from beginning to end, the creation of life, uh, the, the birth of a human being feels like one of those spiritual moments that, that happens that you could be part of as um, a midwife or a labor and delivery nurse. So I really did go to nursing school thinking that I was going to do that. And I got distracted by the high adrenaline stuff like ER nursing and ICU nursing. And that's really where I ended up for the majority of the time that I was a staff nurse. When I was a staff nurse working in the ICU, we would get students and working with students was really fun because the things that had become normal or even mundane to me, students were so excited to be able to do that. You know, they're like priming IV tubing and figuring out, you know, with the, the IV piggybacks, you know, which, which thing goes up? Is it the thousand liter bag or is it the small bag? And we'd go through this process of how do we figure that out and, and have them remember in a way that sticks with them. And that was just always really fun for me. So because I enjoyed having students, I got lots of students and eventually the local nursing school said, Hey, would you ever consider doing clinicals for the school? Since you, you know, you work at one of the local hospitals and you clearly love students. So that really pulled me into the direction of nursing education. I got a master's degree in nursing education and then went on to pursue a PhD in nursing education specifically. And then I would say now primarily I am an, an academic. It's been a while since I've actually worked with a patient, which is something that tugs somewhat on my heart. I really miss working with patients, but I, I love, love, love working with students. Same. Yeah. Students are really fun. They definitely bring, I think, lifeblood back into everything that you're doing because they're so enthusiastic. Yeah. It's hard to maintain that sense of wonder without them. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, as we're getting into a somewhat new paradigm in what nurses do around social determinants of health and health equity, I feel like it's an investment in the future to get students excited about it and finding their place in it. And I just want to give you an example of when I was a, a nursing student, I remember it was one of the medical surgical courses and we were talking about risk factors for cardiovascular disease, diabetes, obesity. And one of the risk factors was listed as race and ethnicity. And under that you know, was uh, African-American, Native American, uh, Mexican-American. And I was like, why, why is that? And the answer that the teacher gave me was it was a genetic predisposition. And at that point, that just didn't make any sense how that could possibly be the reason. So you're saying that these groups of people are more prone to illness, that somehow they're biologically inferior, that they would be more prone to these big illnesses. And that really got me interested in what later I would discover is called the social determinants of health and really understanding epigenetics and the influence of the environment. On, on DNA and health outcomes. And so for a long time, it, you know, I was trying to teach students the value of understanding health disparities and population health. And students were always like, this is really interesting, but what does that have to do with me? I'm going to be a nurse working at the bedside. And so this next chapter has really been helping students see 
that they are central to those changes, both by the practice at the bedside, but also we collectively as nurses, as the, the portion of the healthcare system that has the most amount of people. I mean, we're, you know, what, what are we at? 4.2 million nurses that those are a lot of people and our relationships with patients are so intimate. Like we tend to be the people that spend the most time with patients. So the insights that we have, the skills and the education that we have are really important for us to leverage in terms of making policy recommendations for um, what we're actually teaching in school, the, the, the skills that are valuable for the changes that we wanna see, right? So the, those connections um, happen too. And that's really where I focus most of my time now. So how did you, end up doing what you do now. So you, you got into education and you started teaching a little bit more of an academic. What brought you into your, your general field of research at this point? It's interesting because they seem separate, but they are the same. One of the things is, you know, the story that I told you that there was just some disconnect that I, that bothered me about what is at the heart of illness. And for me, the interest was in race and ethnicity because of my own background being mixed race. But there are also other conditions that I would see a lot in the ICU, like obesity. I have been a nurse long enough that I have seen in my practice this explosion of, uh, of obesity, you know, like in the 80s and the 90s, there were not that many people who we cared for who were living with obesity. And I remember a time in the early 90s when we were getting um, people that were experiencing obesity and we didn't have the equipment. We didn't have like a bedside commode that would fit or a chair, or it was really difficult with the beds that we had because they were basically too small for people. In that, I wondered why is obesity on the rise? And if you look at the CDC website, you can see that something happened in the 80s and 90s that, you know, the, the obesity rates have been increasing over time. And so one of the things that really bothered me was the shaming of individuals that were living with obesity, like rather than understanding that there's something happening at a, at a societal level, we tended to blame people for their circumstances. And that didn't seem in any way fair, like there's something else going on. And that was the same curiosity of why are we saying that there's a predisposition for people of color to have these diseases? There's something else going on. So that was always a, an area of interest in my mind. And then at the same time, when I started teaching, um, I was invited to speak with students that were in what we call the educational opportunity program, which is basically for low income and first generation college students, which were disproportionately people of color. So I thought that I was going to go up and, you know, kind of cheerlead for, yes, you should become a nurse. It's really great. I love being a nurse. You know, that's a talk I am happy to do anytime, but that wasn't the talk. What ended up happening is that there was a group of women of color that were tearfully recounting to me how excluded they felt from nursing, that there wasn't a spot and that it was a white girl's club. Mm -hmm. That resonated with me because I had felt a little bit of that 
in, uh, in nursing as well. And over the years, I watched most of those students graduate magna cum laude from other programs, social work. Somebody even went into the area of art. These were people that could have been nurses that we missed out on because there was something about the culture or the vibe that we gave off that was discouraging perfectly qualified, potentially brilliant people from becoming nurses. So that had me focusing on what are the educational experiences of, of marginalized students. And at first I was focused on students, but I've expanded on nursing students, but now I've expanded to looking at medical students, physician assistant students and nursing students. And of course, students who are marginalized are having very similar experiences across health profession schools. And then, you know, within that broader picture of health equity, one of the ways that we can achieve the state of health equity is by diversifying our health professions workforce. I mean, we need the people who can represent the backgrounds that are underrepresented in, in healthcare, whether it's because we're not paying enough attention to certain groups of people in, in research, that there are certain groups that are under-researched, and that we don't have the lenses of academics and researchers to help us interpret that data or even to decide how to get that data. You know, I see these two things. It's like health equity and education equity as very intertwined with each other. And so for my, for my doctoral dissertation, I focused on what are the educational stories of women of color. The next study that I did was on what are medical and nursing students' experiences with stereotype threat. I did mixed methods. And then my last major round of research is focused on microaggressions and how health profession students experience microaggressions in the classroom or in clinical. And both of those were mixed methods. Mm. Over the last couple of years, there seems to have been, at least in, in my experience, a big shift in the way people think and talk about this whole topic, which yeah. I think is wonderful because, you know, coming from, I mean, my background is I'm Irish, Italian, Filipino, and Puerto Rican. And, you know, so I live as a white person because that's how everyone has always treated me. But I also, my grandmother who is still with me is Filipino and Puerto Rican. Um, the irony of that being when just the side story, she fell and broke her shoulder. We were in the ER and the, you know, administrator came in and was like putting in like, and they asked her what her ethnicity was. And she said, I'm white. And she has a Filipino accent. And we were like, what? We started to laugh. We were like, Graham, what are you talking about? Like you're Filipino and you're Puerto Rican. You're not white. And she was like, grandpa always said, just tell people I'm white. And I'm like, okay. So it was a cute story and it was funny. Um, and we didn't realize that, you know, our, at least my generation, the grandkids didn't realize that until she was 87 years old and she fell. Sometimes I wonder if that's why she's been on Effexor for her whole life. You know what I mean? That she's just oh, had yeah. to deny her, her humanity, like who she yeah. is in order to fit into the culture where she was. Yeah. So I think that so much of this investigation is incredibly important because then that then translates to how we treat patients in general. So can you talk a little bit about what were some of the results of the studies? And then maybe we can kind of get into, and I'm assuming 
it sounds like to me that the trajectory led from, you know, we started investigating one thing, which led to another, which then led to another, <laughs> right? And I yeah. love that. And not that it's linear, but it's like, okay, what do we need to do to fix it? You know what I mean? Right. And highlighting the things is great. So why don't we start with, let's talk about a little bit about what your results were. Yeah. So there was definitely this sense of building over time. So there were some things in my doctoral studies that I, I got from interviews with nurses of color. One of the things that started to become clear and that have become clear with further research are the experiences that students have of marginalization. Of course, I was focusing then on students of color. So one of the things that came up was that in small group work, that students of color often felt like what they had to say, what they contributed was not valued. And so what I'm about to tell you has come up over and over and over in the study sense that there will be a, a person of color contributing to a group assignment and they'll say something like, maybe we should do this or what about this? And everybody will just stop and stare at the person. And for the individual that has just spoken, it feels to them like everybody thinks that what they've said is stupid and they don't even know what to do with it. And then one of the white students will say the same thing and they'll be like, oh yeah, that's a great idea. And for those students of color, they feel like they, they don't have a, a place in the group. They're not respected. What they're saying is not valued. And then that behavior is actually increased in some cases to acts of sabotage when there's a group assignment that everybody's contributing to the writing piece of that, that several students have said that their portions have been deleted and that they've been you know, then accused of not participating. And I had one student that said, because that happened to her so many times, she always had a backup, like of that Google document, that shared Google document, she would back it up so that when that happened, she could just put it back in there or show the instructor. And so those are things that, you know, as a faculty member that uses small group learning a lot, I had no idea until I did that research that that was happening for a lot of students. There have been multiple cases of students of color being plagiarized by white students. And, you know, when the investigation came down, it, they were able to prove that it was their work but it was like the, the white students were fairly confident that they weren't the ones that would get in trouble for the plagiarism. So they you know, targeted students of color. Again, things that are easy for faculty to not know that that's happening. Like the, the students of color that were reporting this to me in their research were like, yeah, I didn't bother to tell the faculty member because I knew that they probably wouldn't believe me. Um, I would probably get in trouble or maybe it would make them feel like they didn't want to admit students of color in the future because they cause problems. So yeah, that has been really hard. So figuring that out, we looked at stereotype threat. And so stereotype threat is the experience that people have where they know that there's a negative stereotype about their group. And then they're put in a position where they could potentially validate that negative stereotype. So for example, there is a thought that still remains in our country. It's basically the legacy of the eugenics that was happening in the early 1900s, that people of color are not as smart as, not as motivated as, not as capable as white people in being successful in the academic setting. 
And standardized testing is something that a lot of students of color and women haven't done well on or as well as, uh, as white men have. And so if there's a stereotype about your academic capability, then you're put in front of a standardized exam, the very thing that you're worried about happening can happen. And I know that I have actually experienced this as well as somebody that is very successful academically and as a nurse, Standardized exams are hard for me. My mind blanks out. I get so nervous and so worried that I'm not going to do well that the, the questions don't make sense to me. I just took one. You know, here I am with a PhD. You know, I, I should be someone that is very confident going into a standardized exam. And I literally had to take the pencil that was provided for me and walk through the construction of the question to figure out what the question was asking. And I think that part of that is, is stereotype threat. And that can be something that's very difficult for students. Mm -hmm. And then from the qualitative portion of, of that study, students said over and over that being doubted by other people, having assumptions be made, being told that they were only admitted as the diversity admission and that they didn't really belong there. Like hearing that, and students hear this over and over from their peers, from instructors, from administration, you know, there was a school that had a drop in their board pass rates and an administrator came out and said, yes, you know, when we increase our diversity rates, we just need to expect that our, our board's rates are going to go down. Whoa, what mm -hmm. kind of message is that to students, you know? And then in that study, there were so many examples of experiences that students had that I felt like I needed to follow up. And those were you know, things around microaggressions, the, the interactions that students would hear on the daily that would fall under the category of a microaggression. And so for students that are experiencing microaggressions, when they're trying to figure out what somebody meant and how they should respond and thinking about what's the risk for me to respond to this, that is actually taking energy away from learning and remembering and processing information to dealing with this unnecessary stressor. And so it can impact learning outcomes. And you know, through that information, a lot of the work that I do now is working with faculty, working with schools of nursing, schools of medicine about how to create inclusive classrooms. What does that look like? What does it mean to create a, a sense of inclusion at the institutional level, at the classroom level? And you know, our hope is that if, if we are practicing inclusion, that students will experience a sense of belonging and a sense that their perspective and their presence in the school is actually valued. It's something of value. And my hope is that students don't just survive health profession school, that because they feel like they're valued and included, they actually thrive and they meet their full academic potential. Yeah, I really, I like that philosophy a lot. I think it's great. And I, I think that we, I've also had that experience. I'm a program administrator as well. And we've had the experience of comments about, well, you know, when you change your, you know, your admission criteria in order to let people in. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. We didn't change anything to let anybody, you know what I mean? To let right. anybody in. Like, that's not helpful at all. And, you know, as a matter of fact, nothing could be more detrimental than putting somebody in a situation that they're not capable of handling. Right. 
you know, and then it just becomes a disaster all around. So at Penn, we have the wonderful advantage of having Dr. Dawn Bent as our program director, who is an African American woman. And she's very well known in the anesthesia community and she's wonderful and she's excellent and people want to be mentored by her. So we have the advantage of that where people want to come to us because she's here. And I, you know, we are taking full advantage of the amazing applicants that we get, but we, we haven't changed and never would change any of our criteria. So it's, we're getting really qualified applicants. And if they're struggling, then we need to figure out why. Yeah. And, and support them along the way. That's what our job as educators is to do. Yeah. And I had the great pleasure of getting to hang out at UPenn this last spring and meeting some of the really amazing students. Like clearly whatever you're doing in admissions is, uh, is high-end. One of the things that happens on admissions committee, I mean, think about that word qualified. What does that word qualified mean? And if you start digging down into it, it becomes a fairly squishy concept. And often what's happening in people's mind is that the most qualified candidates are the ones that are the most like me. Like we have this desire to reproduce ourselves. Sometimes we think, oh, I see myself in that individual. Let's give them a a chance. And if you start thinking about how we do this in-grouping thing, we're often in-grouping based on race and ethnicity. So if we already have a disproportionate number of white women, say, in nursing, and they see themselves in other white students, that's gonna just naturally progress until we begin to interrupt what those processes look like in, in admissions. Yeah, so I really challenge people, what do you mean by qualified? And if you say that a candidate is qualified or not qualified, as scientists, we back up our data. So back that statement up with data. And really by asking faculty to do that, they have to pause and really be able to articulate that this isn't a gut feeling, that this, you know, whatever the the red flag was or whatever the skill set was that the student didn't have, yeah, put that down. And you should be able to communicate that to other people so that we can make sure that we're really meeting what our definition of qualified is and not relying on biases of individuals. And, Mm -hmm. you know, just to keep it 100% real, there can be very well-intentioned people that believe deeply in social justice that default to biases that they're not even aware of. Mm -hmm. Um, Examples can be, um, you know, looking at what school did they go to previous to getting into our program? Was it an Ivy League school? And assuming that if somebody went through community college to a state college and now they're applying to a nursing program or a grad program, at an Ivy League school, well, this person is not as qualified as. And I'm gonna argue that nobody going to community college or state colleges are legacy admits, and they're not buying their way into admissions like we know a lot of people are in Ivy League schools. So that's not really good criteria. Mm -hmm. And there's no evidence that getting a community college or state college education is not just as good as getting an education from an Ivy League school. And so I've just really been asking people to to check themselves on that elitist bias that can come into admissions. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, w- I actually went to community college. That was my first, what well, was my second college experience, but a, a number of my professors actually taught at, I had a history professor who taught at Penn and this was like her moonlighting gig. So Mm -hmm. it was the same course. (laughs) Yeah, right. See, exactly. Exactly. And it was really, really hard, but it was a great course. Yeah. Right. So, and um, and that's what I mean too. And there are a lot of people that are very, very successful. You know, I, I did a little bit of time at community college. I went to a state college uh, for both my, well, for my undergraduate and my graduate degrees. And I feel like I'm able to keep up with anybody who's gone to an Ivy league, you know, don't make me challenge you to an intellectual duel. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and, and you know what, too, it's not even, even if you take race out of it, it's diversity of thought, right? It's learning from a different perspective and learning a different way. And that is, that's what really is when you, when you look at the whole thing, it's, it's not, I don't want to say it's not about race because obviously it is. That's a really big part of it. But people from other races and other ethnicities think differently than the majority group. They come from a different experience. Bringing that in only makes it more robust. Right. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that diversity can be a very broad term. And I think that mm-hmm. it needs to remain a broad term without diluting the importance of focusing on on particular groups. So yes, I want to hold this space where we focus specifically on what does it look like to be anti-racist in our patient care and our um, health professions education. We need to be focusing on race. This is at the root of so many of our problems in the United States. That said, there are other groups that are overlooked in many ways. Um, or that we're not appreciating the the value of that diversity. And just take somebody, for example, who has lived with housing insecurity. Mm -hmm. I would love to be cared for by somebody who has experienced housing insecurity and really understands how difficult it is then to manage your diabetes when your housing situation is not secure. What is it like to manage your diabetes when you don't have access to the kind of foods that you're being taught you should be eating. What about folks that have some insight into what it's like to live with a substance use disorder or to have grown up in a household where that's happening? I mean, that's so very stigmatized and we can be so very cruel to people that struggle with substances. Mm-hmm. Um, I would love to have people that are living with HIV making policy around you know, HIV management and things like that. You know what I mean? So diversity can be very very broad. But, you know, for a lot of people that experience stigmatized situations, we need to create environments where they can feel included. And like that insight is actually valuable rather than they're going to be judged Mm -hmm. on that. And one of the areas that I personally am trying to focus on more and more is diversibility. Um, A lot of times when I'm talking at conferences and things about microaggressions, they're like, but what about people experiencing you know, dis- uh, some sort of disability? And so I reached out to our diversity committee at our school and I said, you know what? I haven't been spending a lot of time understanding the microaggressions that people that have a disability might experience. And one, I found a group grateful for the opportunity to share their experiences. And 
you know, some of the experiences that they shared, they weren't surprising, yet I didn't know that that was the experience. Take, for example, an individual who has a disability that you can't see. Um, take, for example, a person living with, with MS. And this woman was sharing that, you know, with MS, sometimes, you know, ex an extra amount of exertion can cause an exacerbation or just sap that last bit of energy that you have. So, you know, taking the stairs, the elevator, you're going over to take the elevator and somebody's like, oh, come take the stairs. And you say, no, I'm going to take the elevator. And like, oh, come on, just get your steps in for the day, get some exercise. And that that can be meant, you know, in a good natured way, but it can be experienced as a microaggression when you're feeling shamed for taking the elevator. Again, you know, it sounds completely reasonable when you hear it, but I had to wonder, man, have I done that to anybody ever? I'm not sure mm -hmm. if I've said that, but that was really eye-opening for me. So I think it's really helpful to lean into understanding groups who you don't know much about or you haven't explored. You know, we, we tend to be experts in the way that we experience marginalization, but we're not necessarily experts in the way that other folks experience marginalization. And part of being a good nursing instructor or a good care provider is having that knowledge, really leaning into what you don't know. That's a great perspective that I really hadn't considered. I think one of the things that I do that I'm not sure is always helpful is when I'm, I'm, I find myself in a situation where somebody's trying to share their experience and it's not something that I quite understand. I try and translate it into, mm -hmm. you know, how, okay, you're telling me you feel this way. So when did I feel that way? You know yeah. what I mean? And what did it feel like? You know, what did it go there? Sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it's not. I'm not sure how, how the other person yeah. feels about it. I try well, not to make it about me, but. Yeah. I, I think that that's a, that that's a normal sort of thing to do. I mean, certainly, as you say, we don't want to take the focus off the individual that's trying to share a story, but we tend to process things based on experiences that we've had. And this happened in a, in a really good way once where I was in a place that was a very, very white place, maybe more conservative. And I was there talking about race and racism and inequities and stuff. And I use the example of people living with obesity and the marginalization that they often feel. And this woman approached me at the end of the conference and she was somebody that was living with obesity. And she's saying, so you're telling me that the experiences that people of color have with racism are similar to the experiences that I have as somebody that is overweight, obese. And I was like, yeah, there are some, definitely some parallels. And I could see for her that it was an aha moment that she didn't realize prior to that, that those feel that there's some commonality in that sort of feeling. So her making that connection, trying to say, how does this relate to my life experiences? I mean, that can be one of the ways that we bond. One of the things that's not helpful though, is that when we get into a competition of who's got it worse, you know, like that doesn't help anybody. There's no way to measure something like that. I think what it is, is to understand the ways that we feel the ways that we do. And honestly, even though it's sometimes hard to hear people's stories, I think that the ultimate thing is, is joy and understanding and connecting with people that are different from you. I mean, there's really a beautiful process that can happen in understanding groups that are different from your own. I always feel blessed 
when I learned something new about groups of people I didn't know about before. I agree with you there. I've been teaching a policy course in the last couple of years. And obviously we talk about some pretty touchy subjects, you know, in terms of health disparities and, you know, just even healthcare topics that can be a little triggering for some people. And the the differences in opinions, I think, are what make the class so inc- incredibly rich. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. And to be able to have that discussion, that open discussion with, you know, why people feel the way they do. It's not about changing other people's minds. It's just opening people's minds to accepting an experience different from their own. Yeah. And, you know, I think that that's something that sometimes the students sort of surprise themselves with with being a little softer towards somebody with a different opinion or different experience. Right. And that is really one of the reasons why diversifying our nursing programs is so important, but that diversifying has to come with inclusion because what, Mm. what is happening now is that yes, we're admitting more students of color without changing or updating the way that our programs operate. So that, you know, they come into our programs and feel like they need to, you know, put their heads down and be silent, lest, you know, something bad happen to them in terms of judgment or being disregarded. And we lose the magic that can happen with diversity when people feel silenced and they don't feel valued. So that's why we use diversity and inclusion together to do this thing. But yeah, that's that's the beauty of it is by sharing perspectives, we open the minds of everyone. And when people's minds are open, then they are in this place of, of learning more of the truths about the world that they live in, about the people that they're working with. Hello, Angela. Hello, Marion. How are you? I am good. How are you? I'm amazing. I am can't tell you how much I enjoyed your episode with Puri. What a way to kick off season six of the Amplify Nursing podcast. Yeah, it was a fantastic discussion to have. I really, really enjoyed having it. Yeah, I really enjoyed her thoughts on the experiences of students of color in nursing school, what it means to diversify the nursing profession and all the work that she's been doing around that since her time working as a staff nurse. And then obviously now with the research work that she's doing. Yeah. And the the thing that I really admire about Peary is that for her, this was something that she started looking into this way before anyone else was really talking about it. And If you follow the trajectory of her research, she started noticing the disparities and then what we can do to fix them. And the other things that are, you know, at each part of her research leads to something else that she explores and and just opens it up. And I really appreciate that whole lens because I'm a pragmatist, right? So it's no point in telling me what the problem is if there isn't some sort of solution on the horizon. So what can we do to fix the problem? And I think that she's one of those people that is offering solutions to a problem that is really complex and and challenging. Yeah, but I will say as someone who also teaches and interacts with students, you know, I didn't know a lot of the things that she had said 
how other students, like white students, would plagiarize from students of color and and the conflicts within groups and things like that. And I think it's really important for faculty and instructors to hear these things and know that they're going on. And it's our place as instructors and faculty to really give our all of our students a safe space in our classrooms to thrive. And if things like that are going on, we should we should be aware of it. Agreed. And and yes, that's definitely one of the one of the things that was brought out during the conversation. And, you know, I think it's really important as faculty that we keep up on all of the different things that are happening. And and Penn, I met Peary through a workshop that Penn offered in the spring. It was like a four-day workshop that where she came and talked about all different aspects of teaching and some of the issues that that come about with diversity and, and inclusion and the ability to support our students of color. And I and I think that's that's what everyone should be doing. Amplify Nursing is hosted by Dr. Angela Rosa DiDonato and Marion Leary and produced by the University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing. With special thanks to Jonathan Zhu for his assistance. Music for the podcast was created by Harper Leary. The podcast is made possible by the Krista and Rich Panola Fund for Innovation in Nursing. Follow us on Twitter at Penn Nursing. Until next time, keep pushing over, under, around, and through. We want to thank you for listening to the Amplify Nursing podcast and remind you to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening. And if you can do us a solid, please rate and review us as well. It will go a long way in amplifying our episodes.